The uh, title for the uh, talk with you this afternoon is The Full Moon of May. <coughs> and, uh, today in the uh, Buddhist world, especially the uh, Theravada Buddhist world, it's uh, the most, in fact, important day of the year. It is the uh, day when uh, Buddhists and Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, parts of India, uh, etc., as well as uh, in the West, um, celebrate and mark the birth, death and awakening or enlightenment uh, of uh, Gautama. So what happens in Buddhist countries on this day is that literally uh, millions of lay people will make the yatra, the pilgrimage um, to the local uh, monastery and uh, offer uh, food to the uh, monks and nuns. And this is the way of marking and celebrating and giving uh, dana, giving gifts to uh, support the monastery. And I remember um, on this uh, day when I was uh, a monk in Thailand, um, the sheer numbers of uh, village people, because I was in rural Thailand, who would come to the monastery and the um, monks would sit in a long line uh, opposite each other, cross-legged of course, and then the tablecloth down the middle and then the lay people would come and offer the dishes quite in quite small uh, bowls. And it was not unusual that we would have 50, 60, 80, 100 dishes of food to choose from. And the, the belief in the monastery is that, from the lay people that the monks and nuns have to take some food from each bowl because only at that point do they make any merit. So when you've got a hundred bowls of food around you, and, uh, and all these eyes of the beloved lay people watching, so you take this food, you take a little bit of one, a little bit of this, and then a little bit of that, a little bit of the other, and then put it in one of these. This is the normal size, typical... Um, Buddhist monks begging bowl and you just drop it all in there there and then you get the sweets and you drop all of that in there and eat up and with lots of big smiles from the lay people that ones and uh, some believe that when the monks are eating uh, the food on this day that um, they're, they're feeding their um, dead relatives who are um, hanging around in the hungry ghost realm. So, uh, so they're very keen for us to eat because they're worried about their starving relatives in the hell realms. <laughs> it's all uh, religious belief. Despite that, we got well fed. Anyway, more importantly, that uh, just t taking back now 2,600 years uh, 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 ago, I'd just like to uh, speak a little bit about the realizations of the day, uh, the day of the Buddhist enlightenment, 
that it genuinely applies and has certain kind of um, principles or insights which apply to us. So the very story itself and Gautama's uh, description of what took place for him, I would say, bears an important relationship to our own insights and understanding. And what I mean by that is that prior to the night of uh, awakening, the story itself, and including it, is probably one of the best known stories on our planet. That one person's search and quest for truth, the realization about what truth actually is, the awakening and the liberation that came with the finding of uh, truth, that millions, possibly billions on this earth, have A, have heard of the Buddha, and B, know that something dramatic, intense or something happened to him that uh, woke him up and the consequences of that are still being felt actually in this room today. <laughs> so the, it's all I call all this further waves of the of the Big Bang. You see something happens and it continues to happen. You know, even when two people give each other a hug, and there's touch and there's contact there. Uh, even the, the most modest kiss of life is actually a reverberation from the Big Bang, you see. The contact, this is life unfolding. Prior to the event there, the view was in ancient India, and it's still a strongly held view, it's still creates the waves uh, <coughs> today, was that the way, the way, the only way to wake up was via meditation. That view, prior to the awakening, was the view that the Buddha himself held to. And the culture of the time, which had a wealth of genuine philosophy of life, uh, real exploration, took and adopted the position to some degree that the world itself was something of a problem, that the impact of the world through the senses, and especially the world of pleasure, was intoxicating, it was addicting, addictive, I'm sorry, and that view was held very strongly, it was believed in, and therefore it came about the yogi. I don't hold to these views, by the way, nor does, nor does the Buddha, but it came about the yogi. And the yogi was he or she who withdrew from the world and detached themselves in order to meditate. And through meditation, there would be a change or a shift in consciousness and that would bring about what was called then the jiva mukti. Jiva means life, there, the living being, 
and mukti means liberation. So by withdrawing from the world, going deep inside, one would free oneself up from the problems of the world. And this view was held so strongly that when um, Gautama fled from his wife and Yashodara and his son uh, uh, Rahula because he couldn't handle the responsibility, and that's still going on of course, um, uh, he went on this spiritual yogi quest just the same as many others had done at the same time. And then, again, this is uh, something to bear in mind here, that an important experience, or two actually, happened to him. Um, one was with Udaka, and the other I think was Ramaputta. And these were two great yogis with profound depths of experience, he became a student, a disciple, a follower of the two. And with one, he came to a depth of experience and, and the world was no longer a problem. And in the depth of experience that took place, the teacher said to him, yes, that's the experience that uh, uh, realm of experience is the profound one. Now you've realized it, now you know it, now you can teach with me. There. But there was a concern of the Buddha, was that he had the experience, it stayed for a while, many, many meditators know this, I hear it every day, and then came out of the experience, and then find themselves back in this world, so to speak, having to deal with daily life situations, etc. And um, whatever, then looking for the next retreat. <laughs> and so the Buddha left that teacher and then went to another teacher who also had many disciples, many followers doing practice. And this was an even deeper experience had a real depth of experience, once again the same invitation, aha, you have realized what I have realized, you understand what I understand, now you are ready to teach. And again the Buddha found himself in having a very deep experience, it was genuine, but then coming out of it and having to deal with his own stuff as well as other people's stuff. So there was a duality from the inner to the outer. Yeah. <coughs> so he said, well that's not the way for me. And then he went off to uh, Saranath, there, and engaged even in more austere, hardcore practices, there, which had the view, and please remember, our life is determined to a large extent by our view. The way we view give shape to our life, the power of the view. And so he had the view that the body was a problem, itself was a problem. And therefore, if he could let go of the body, <coughs> he would be a jiva mukti, a liberated one, because he lost all attachment to the body. And the only way he knew how to do that was to engage in very severe practices of 
body rejection. <coughs> One, fasting. And I've had a few people on the retreats who just who want to fast. There, well, it's less to cook, I suppose, that's one advantage. But um, what happens with people that same can happen, not always with people who fast, that because it goes to one extreme, it does happen that sometimes when people stop fasting, they actually then go down the other extreme and making morning, noon and night pilgrimages to the refrigerator, <coughs> which is the the sacred shrine of the West, <laughs> and, and just in the refrigerator. So going from one position, then swinging down the other. Uh, there. So uh, the Buddha engaged in this uh, fasting, lost a huge amount of uh, 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 weight, joined the land of the living dead, and all in the name of spirituality and realized at some point this is useless. Useless is an understatement, completely hopeless and pointless, and decided to leave. So his beloved friends thought, this guy is copping out. He hasn't, as we say in English, he hasn't got the bottle. And he's leaving. And he made the walk to Bodhgaya, Gaya. Then Bodh means awakening. So it was there to this uh, small village. And one of those small incidences of life became a turning point involving actually a, a woman. And the turning point was she uh, saw him, you know, kind of all bone and skin, skin hanging, hanging off it. Her name was Sujata and offered him a bowl of uh, milk rice. And he had enough common sense left to receive it, and it gave him some uh, nourishment uh, there. And now from that small gesture came the, came the rem remembrance from the time of the age of 12 of sitting under a tree, watching his father start the ploughing season, and because he was the, the king, the ruler, and remembering he felt peaceful, content, and happy. He remembered at 12 years of age, he was sitting under a tree watching his father, he was peaceful, he was content, and he was happy, and just and concentrated on what was happening. And he said to himself, could this be the way to a real awakening? And with the wealth of experience prior uh, to that, then he sat under the tree. And in the sitting under the tree, <coughs> from uh, that experience, came the realizations there. And I'd just like to um, um, mention the, the three of them. They all are uh, deeply important. And for awakening, to some degree, uh, all are three signs or um, indicators or marks about what awakening is all about. And before going into it, if I may, I'll um, just use it to show the stark 
strong contrast with what you, probably I, certainly tend to hear today. And then after that, I'll make some uh, comment on some rather bizarre statements of the Buddha, which is cut off the wall, but I'll come to that in a minute. So today, this is I, I hear this from some people, nobody in this hall of course would say this, but uh, elsewhere, things like some coming out with some absolute one-liners. The absolute one-liners. It belongs to the kind of spiritual rhetoric that we are living in. And uh, it's um, said in a few uh, traditions, Buddhist spiritual, the terror of the new age, and um, Advaita, the non-dual, etc. So, um, I'll just take, I'll take three, three or four, I could go on a huge rant about it, but on three or four would be more than enough. So one of them is, there is only the now. This, this one has become the new commandment to believe in, there. So once that's stated, <coughs> there is only the now, we are kind of um, frozen in it, because there's only the now, this is it. Um, I have no wish to be trapped in the now, thank you very much. Um, no matter what my spiritual New Agey friends try to convince me about there. And it's interesting, the, the high priest, the chief rabbi, the, the Pope of the now, is supposed to be the Buddha. See, they always say, they're always quoting the Buddha. The Buddha said there is only the now. I see even posters and postcards and you know that. In 10,000 discourses, in the Pali, there is nowhere, not one sing single sentence, which gets close to the Buddha saying, there is only the now. <laughs> it's not in the seeing, it's not in the viewing, it's not in the way of look looking. Not how the Buddha teaches. Uh, there. And what one has, and the lovely statement goes, dite dharme. This gets freely translated. It's so free, it's out to lunch. It gets freely translated as here and now. Dite is not here, and Dharma is not now. <laughs> These are two words. Somebody put it in and thought, that's what it says. So Dite is the view. Dite means view, it's the view of. And Dharma, Dharma, in this case, is essentially what is arising. Everything is a Dharma. So, <coughs> Buddha's teachings is Dite Dharma. What is the view of what's arising? What is the view of what's present? What is the view of what's past? What is the view of what might be future? So it's the looking at the relationship of the view to that which arises. Dite dame there. It's not an ideology, be here and now, there is only the now. The ideology is rather comfortable in a certain mad way because we're just being uh, here, here and now. That means 
that everything else is false and is an illusion uh, uh, there. Which, of course, renders all of human exploration, the whole history of exploration, rather import unimportant, because it's all an illusion. There's only the now. I prefer, and the, the Buddha's Dharma too, to pay respect and acknowledge the relationship of the long history of our species. I prefer to pay respect to the processes of what is unfolding there and not say only the now and rubbish and dismiss history. I think we do have a long, long history. That history goes back thousands, millions, and our scientists now call it, say, like, what, billions of, of, of years. And there is an extraordinary unfoldment or evolution which is taking place. And we, you and I, in the tiny little blip of time that we are in, it's part of a long unfolding kind of process uh, which is there. And that another kind of uh, uh, view which is also uh, very, very uh, strong there, and, um, and this one gets carved in the rock of the spiritual ideology, and it's called Everything is One. There is only oneness. <coughs> oneness is the supreme thing. So all differences are false. There is only oneness. Oneness is the uh, reality. And again, this view does the rounds in the spiritual circuit uh, there. But sometimes... I consider myself a normal human being, um, probably like you. I, frankly, I don't feel one with everything. And why should I? <laughs> because some guru says life is all one. Well, it might be for usually him, but it might be him or, or her. But sometimes we're not one with others. You know, I don't, I don't feel uh, at, at one with... Um, plenty of our political leaders, for example. I don't feel particularly at one with all the violence and aggression and greed, nor with the corporate world and the bankers and... Uh, I don't feel at one with all of that. And sometimes, and even with those who are close to us, that sometimes it's a, a real delight and pleasure not to be one with them. One wants to be alone and not be one with everybody all the time. Uh, there, so I think there's a real value in a place personally for differences, for diversity, to really appreciate, of course, and recognizing the times when we do really feel at one with, but not to make a holy cow out of it. Not to say, oh, oneness is the real thing, and, um, and two-ness, that's a problem. Well, no, Tunis is very nice. And, uh, and sometimes we like to be alone and not one with everybody and, and, uh, some, some, and like to be in our solitude. And we uh, like to be inward and not be outward. We don't have to be one with everything there. And at times that appreciation of the oneness uh, is important, it genuinely uh, uh, is value, but Tunis is nice for those of us 
who, uh, uh, especially people like me, <coughs> and maybe some of the men uh, here in the room here who uh, like uh, like football. You know, f- uh, frankly, I'm not going there for the experience of oneness. I'm going to experience. I'm going there to experience the team I support win. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, if I was saying, oh, it's all one, it'd be a boring old game, wouldn't it? Where would the passion, the passion be? And so, uh, I don't support Chelsea, so when they come to play Munich, I'll be cheering on Munich. <laughs> I support Arsenal. So, um, again, the dynamics of two-ness and one-ness uh, uh, in life, I think I have a real importance in, in life and I don't think it's necessary to elevate one kind of experience and downplay or undermine another kind of experience. I think they have a place. Um, the key I think to all of this is uh, watching in ourselves in either experience whether there is any clinging or holding going on. That's the key. It's not oneness or differences, but is there any holding going on? And so a person who holds on to the experience of oneness will have trouble when that oneness experience fades away and the differences begin to arise. A person who holds on to differences is projecting more into it. And we all know the danger of holding on to differences and all the kind of phobias and the demonization and uh, the intolerance and the judgmental mind and the projections that go on through investing and infecting differences whole history of Europe is, has, has nightmares because of the projection of differences. And the shadows of that continue, continue and continue, as well as elsewhere in the, in, uh, in the world. <coughs> so it, it's our exploration and our inquiry and investigation to, to appreciate diversity, to appreciate the wide ranges of differences between in men and women, in children, in animals, in sentient beings, in the nature, etc. To appreciate the oneness experiences as well, but to see life and conscious life can have exposure and love of the differences and love of oneness without clinging and holding. That's the key. The inner life can look at the past pay respect to it, our own personal history, our family history, look at all of that, give attention to that. There's a small army of skillful psychologists and analysts who can encourage some really good insights, great army of biologists who can tell us about our biological life and its long history. And I think it's worth leaving this moment to explore and look into the past and to see our direction with the future, to be respectful to that, 
is our, are our values with the future in the service of other people, in the service of our species and of life on earth, there. And therefore to pl- pay respect to the three fields of time called past, present and future. I get concerned with this spiritual now ideology, uh, personally, that uh, goes on. Um, and it might be just be feeding unconsciously into this live now, pay later culture of what we are seeing and the huge, terrible, frightening consequences throughout Europe and uh, much of the rest of the world. And all the debts and the stress and, and the pressure that's going with it through not giving enough vision and attention to a wider view of life. And I think therefore the spiritual now ideology uh, is not helpful for, uh, for, any, for any, any of us. And the other, um, the Buddhist world, again it becomes a kind of mantra of usage uh, there, in which it's said again and again, oh everything <coughs> is impermanent. You know, if I had a, a euro for every time I've heard that over the past few decades, everything is impermanent, everything is changing. Yes, we know, and trees are made of wood. And uh, so we hear these views uh, uh, expressed. But what easily happens for us is that it becomes the rhetoric. It loses its significance it becomes a generalised statement and we, we end up as being these terrible Buddhist philosophers. And someone comes, she or, ha- she or he has some painful period, some stress and struggle, you know, marriage is broken up, you know, the kids are fighting, got no, no, no job or whatever, whatever it might be, and then along comes the Buddhist philosopher, well, everything's impermanent. Oh, great help. <laughs> it's amazing insight. I really feel, really benefit from hearing that miserable one-liner. So, how easy the language gets thrown out. You know, we throw it at ourselves and at other, other people as though it's some great new discovered truth which we're going to get, go fall on our hands and knees. Oh, you're so wise. Everything is impermanent. God, how clear you are, etc. Buddha speaks of change, and and it's not. There is one seeing of change, and and there is a genuine value to it, etc. If you think of any of the issues of our day-to-day life, whatever they might be. They will be around. Either things changing and we don't want them to change or things not changing and we want them to change. If you can think of any problem outside of that, on to you. So, out of the simple event, something is changing and I want it to change or uh, something is not changing, no, something is changing and I don't want it to change, or whatever, or, of course the alternative would be, I can't make up my mind, (laughs) do I want it to change or don't I? So the world of change 
does have a significant impact on human life. It is important that we look into the areas of change there. The difficulty can be that easily it lends itself to a kind of passive position. This is the rhetoric. leads itself to a passive position. <coughs> Having spent years in Buddhist countries <coughs> and uh, reasonably intimate with them there, in the monasteries where the rhetoric reaches <coughs> fever point, they will say, and it gets passed on to the lay people, no matter what the abuse is of human rights, they will say, oh well, what can you expect? You know, everything is changing, governments go, come, governments go, everything is changing, it's just changing, etc. The consequence of that is that in some of the Buddhist countries have had, and still have actually, some of the worst human rights records on this planet. Because of this rhetoric, everything is changing. <coughs> and a complete ignoring that in the relationship to change, Buddha ha the Buddha, Gautama, has approached it in two ways. One is seeing of change. Two, making of it. The making of it got forgotten. To make change, to see what is to be looked at, this is the awareness, the mindfulness, the inquiry, the questioning, the wisdom, and to make change. And when it's just seeing it without the making of it, one ends up in this passive position. And I think it's tragic. And one doesn't get any feeling with the Gautama uh, of a passive kind of approach. He criticised authority. He criticised the Brahmin priests. He criticised animal sacrifice. He criticised religious belief. He made jokes about the belief in, in God as the re rewarder and punisher. He uh, looked at the relationship to uh, uh, animals. He, he endorsed and generated the first democracy in the, on the planet with the Sangha. He, he got women out of uh, the servitude and encouraged them to lead a spiritually nomadic life, etc. He changed the culture and the, env and the environment. <coughs> that wasn't through observing change. That was through making it, making it happen. And therefore, the voice of uh, wisdom and compassion really had to and worked together and that was a real important aspect of that. <coughs> Under the tree. There. In his later years he gives a, um, as you can tell I'm a, quite a big fan of the, the, the Buddha. Plenty of criticism but it's a full moon day and we'll be compassionate today. Um, but under the uh, 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 from under the tree of uh, the Buddha where afterwards he spent seven weeks and then 
and didn't make too much reference to it, just there's just a few places. And in the latter period of his life, so the text uh, say there, he had a conversation about what is called the noble quest. Pali word, um, which uh, the fascists, of course, two or three generations used. The Pali word for noble is Aryan. And he spoke about the noble quest and gave some description of what happened under the tree. And there were three important phases of it. And this, I think, hopefully is genuinely of some interest to, to us uh, there because it gives some expression of an awakened life without reducing it to some kind of simple one-liner, like I just said a few moments ago. The first aspect of this is the, um, uh, the l- what he called, um, or what gets translated as past lives. And what I mean, uh, uh, mean by this, or meant by this, sometimes you and I, in our reflection, begin to see how many formations and events and roles have made up our life. And even today, you know, if I look at myself, what am I, a Dharma teacher, and of course a practitioner, and householder, and father, and grandfather, and uh, uh, friend, and uh, traveller, and da 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 So there's a whole uh, variety, um, even consumer, heaven forbid, and uh, a few of these other shopper, etc., <laughs> cyclist, you know, it goes on. <laughs> so if you and I look, not a motorist, I have to say, I renounced <laughs> 12 years ago, so, in the looking at our past and our present, we have these variety, numerous roles that you and I move in and out every day. And those roles do not exist, this is the important thing, independently of the inner life. So, in my role, some of them can arise at any time. So, the roles that I have in their arising will arise with feeling, will arise with memory, will arise with some thought, some view, and some interpretation. Therefore, the role will carry voices. And there may may well be roles which um, I would like to have, but I don't have. And that would carry another whole stream of feelings, views, and formations there. So, when we look at the inner life, this is part of the realization under the tree, he said, when we look under it's like we've got all of these past lives. <laughs> we, we know the Buddhists have interpreted that in their own eccentric way, but I'm more down to the reality. And I look at myself sometimes. And I quite often say, 
um, oh, in my past life, I was a, a newspaper reporter. Because it seems so long ago, I just it's in my past life. Uh, uh, there, not a very good one as well. <laughs> and um, so, therefore, there are these roles, and how much of the inner life hangs, so to speak, around the role, happily and painfully. When you and I think of any of our issues or problems in life, they're generally hanging around a role in some way or other. And of course, the various uh, dynamics. So, who am I without the role? What am I without a role? What is this without an identity? And that then gave way to a fresh ways of looking. So sometimes, in our meditate, meditations, and in our silences and witnessing uh, that takes place, sometimes there's no role, even the role of being a meditator. Because the role of the meditator, if that is identified with, as we know well, can produce one heck of a lot of judgments. Not only about oneself, but about the other poor sods in the room as well. Oh, he's so serious, and she's so uptight, and he can't meditate, and gosh, he looks like a, a bodhisattva. And I'm sure the Buddha's going to be in the room, it's the full mood of May, and she'll probably get totally enlightened by tonight, and the light will be pouring out of her by tomorrow morning, <laughs> etc. And as well as the views about oneself, one good meditation, we we're, we're, we're think we're on the, on the edge of cosmic ecstasy. <laughs> and uh, the next minute we think we're going to be joining our parents in the hell realms. <laughs> so, all based on the interpretation and the view of the meditation. This goes on. So sometimes in our meditations, the identity of the meditator, the self, the judge has no grip, doesn't have a hold uh, uh, over. And this, this the next uh, important aspect of all of this, gives rise, an important aspect, yeah, Buddha's teachings here, of the processes that bring something about. So, in other words, the, some of the profound insights of awakening is the, the recognition and the beginning to know and understand the way things emerge, the, the causes, causes, plural, and conditions, plural, which bring about an event. And this became an important aspect of the realization. Human beings have the tendency to point the finger. So sometimes we point it at ourselves and we say to ourselves, well, I remember when, and then we go back to the past, and we say, I 
have caused all this my, on myself. I, the ego here, brought all of this upon myself. So sometimes the view arises, I am to blame for everything that's happened to me. <coughs> or the view may arise, I have been so successful in this world, I, I again, have achieved so much, and I did it all by myself. I did it through all my own efforts, and this is why I am like I am. There's a few huge egos wandering around the world like this. So sometimes we say, I am the cause of my success, and I am the cause of my failure. This is not, it's an ego trip, either, either way. Then sometimes we say, ah, it's not me, it's the other. The other, the glorious other. So sometimes in the view which is externalized, we attribute it, might be, we can attribute it to our parents. Oh, my parents, they, they, I have so much to be grateful for. They made me who I am. Oh, no, they didn't. Yeah. Or, one's life is a disaster. Oh, it's all due to my upbringing. Yeah, so, my, my parents were a nightmare. So, I have to keep living out their nightmare. So, how easy, either self, it goes, cause, or other. This view has an incredible hold over human beings. It's a very strong hold over consciousness. It's looking in a small and narrow way. Now, sometimes we say, well, it's a bit of them, whoever it might be, parents, friends, family, sangha, a bit of them and a bit of me. So a bit of me was the cause and a bit of them was the cause and then it happened because of that. There, the obvious question, which bit? Which bit of them caused us to be like we are? What bit of me caused me to be like I am? Uh, uh, there. And sometimes when we can't explain, we run into the metaphysic. Metaphysic, um, the old word would be G-O-D. But that's well, certainly in England, long gone out of fashion. <laughs> I hardly ever hear the word there. It's a truly godless country. And, um, or sometimes we would say, um, uh, it was a blessing. Destiny. Fate. Accident. Cosmic, a miracle, good fortune, bad fortune. Oh, of course, it was in the stars. <laughs> it's totally related to my astrological sign, etc. So when we are finding something difficult to explain, we're not kind of understanding the causes and conditions there, We'll either go, I'm the cause, you or they are the cause, a bit of both, if none of that seems comfortable, the metaphysic. 
Dharma teaching is to try to get free us from being in that box or boxes. Free us from holding and clinging to that view in order that we can look a little bit deeper. What are the causes and conditions that make us what we are? What are the causes and conditions that are contributing today to our state of mind? What needs to be developed? What needs to be let go of? What's the change that's needed? And sometimes we know, in making a small change, a whole structure can change. A small change in attitude. A small change of habit can make an enormous difference. The person who has been simple example, who has smoked. And then one day she or he says, enough. The end, there is the ending of the relationship of the cigarette, the match, the striking, the putting the thing in the mouth, and the, that goes along uh, with it. And that little sequence, one has got fed up with it, tired of it, stopped it, the body has a chance to breathe and the health benefits as well as the contribution to putting out the tobacco companies out of business which is one of my greatest prayers that uh, something can change the whole organism has some potential for recovery just from one act of change and that act of change, that in this case is a small example of many in our life, the act of letting go, in the act of letting go, it's opening up and it's liberating. It's freeing us up. Therefore, we see change and we make change. And the two work together. And that became a significant message or statement of the Buddha. Yeah. Also, the other, so one was the looking at the roles and identities that we have in the past and seeing how much of that is bound up and freeing ourselves up from. The second is looking into the causes and conditions and seeing that what's the change that will make the difference, especially around any kind of suffering. What's the change? That was the, the second. And the third, which is, emerges, we might say, from the previous two, and that is the genuine sense of waking up, of being a, a conscious and a free human being. And with that liberating movement, or with that waking up, sometimes we genuinely have a, a, real, a real sense of it. And so sometimes as people report uh, regularly on retreats and uh, in other uh, environments, of the real sense of how extraordinary free life is, reflected in the diversity, and sometimes we can put hand on heart and say quite clearly and truthfully, Right now, in this moment, there is no problem with anything. 
not with myself, not with life, not with anybody on this earth, not with any event. Sometimes we were head and heart say, there is genuinely is no problem there. And that is a taste and a sense of what the Buddha established for himself on the daily basis. It wasn't the occasional, it was the norm. It was the norm. And that didn't mean there was any kind of withdrawal. He generated consistent contact with women and men and children. Yashadara became a very close companion of his for the rest of his life. His own son, Rahula, he became a caring and responsible father and had these extraordinary dialogues with his son, uh, etc. And he took the role of the father very seriously uh, um, after the awakening. So this expression of looking into these roles that we have in life, seeing if we're caught up anywhere, looking at the causes and conditions of what needs to change, secondly, thirdly, the sense of, of being an awake, mindful and comprehensive uh, human, uh, human being, and all of that brought together uh, which he made clear about what an awakened life is all about. So no fixed, simplistic ideology. That was just not part of the teaching. What was extraordinary, this is, it still makes me smile when I even think about it, he, after the seven weeks, he decided to go firstly to walk from Bodh Gaya, and uh, I have this I mentioned this kind of long connection with uh, Buddhagaya. When I was a monk in the, um, the good old days, when uh, Buddhagaya was extremely quiet, very few visitors there, uh, the gates <coughs> around the, in this little park around the Bodhi tree weren't locked at night, one could go and sit. I used to go and s- the tree didn't have all these. Um, marble stones around it, it was much more free in that respect. So I, I could go and sit under the tree at night hoping something might rub off somewhere. <laughs> and uh, all this was in the 19, uh, 1970s. And since um, then, the Lord Abbot of the Thai monastery kindly invited me back uh, for teaching there. Uh, once a year in Budgaya for the last 38 years. So it's kind of this long um, uh, uh, a connection there. When one goes back to the original um, period from 2,600 years ago, he decided, as I said, firstly to, go, to walk 180 kilometers to uh, Saranath to give some teaching uh, there, and then from there to... Uh, uh, go to the uh, capital of the Sakyans to see his wife and son and share with them what he'd understood. And that was the kind of sequence uh, that he did. And he took, uh, uh, started this walk and then somebody spotted him 
And first of all, he had some doubts. To get the point here, is immediately after this complete enlightenment, supposedly full compassion for all human beings, uh, and, and then the doubt arises. So, if he can have doubts, well, I think we can have some too. So, uh, a doubt arises, and the doubt that arose was, will people understand this teaching? That was the doubt. Will they really be able to understand it? Because it's not consumerism and secularism. They're about being a good person and having a great career and making a lot of money and being very successful. It's not about, it's not about secularist values. And it's not about religious values with all of its bizarre beliefs. Uh, there, it's something other than that. It's about wisdom. It's about love. It's about compassion, uh, and it's about understanding the process of his words, dependently arising causes and conditions of what everything is contingent, dependent on everything else. To understand that, completely explore that in every area and avenue. So he thought, people won't understand this. So this Brahmin said to him, there are men and women with little dust in their eyes. They'll, they'll, they'll get it, they'll understand it. And the Buddha needed some persuasion, and he got persuaded and he carried on walking. So then this guy, a, a yogi, a Jain from Jain, spotted him. And um, he said to him, God, your complexion, it's so bright, so clear. Well, of course, he's got himself enlightened. <laughs> he's very happy and free. And he says, God, co complexion is so bright and so clear. And then the Buddha came out with this statement. To me, it's, it must be the most egotistical statement ever uttered by a human being. He said, this is what he said. <laughs> I am the teacher supreme. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> the Buddha hasn't even taught anybody yet. <laughs> and then he said, nobody in the world is equal to me. Whoa, wait a minute. The first thing is, I didn't know that he'd met every other teacher. So how can you know if you're the supreme teacher? You'd have to know every other teacher. You to, you know, no one in the world is equal to me. Well, there's probably a million or two people on the planet that time. He had to meet them all to say, well, none of you are equal to me. But can you imagine that somebody coming to the ward house? <laughs> you know, Nicole or Christopher. <laughs> we sit down here, we say... I am the teacher supreme <laughs> and no one in the world is equal to me. What? People say, can I have my money back? I'm going home. <laughs> so, the, and the, the guy who heard him say this, it says in the text, he looked at him and shook his head this way, not this way, this way. <laughs> so, and just walked off. <laughs> thought that Gautama was a lunatic. 
Now, he never said it again, I don't think, I hope, anyway. So sometimes, just to, to uh, make the comment here, that sometimes all of us, with the language of the eye, including Gautama, can come out with some statements about ourself. The eye arises, the statement arises about ourselves, and then sometimes afterwards we think, God, <laughs> it's embarrassing, etc. And I just put that all, as all part of the kind of humanness of life whether we are the Buddha or whether we are just ordinary people, that sometimes the I language comes out and we uh, put it out uh, there and others hear us and they go, oh, wow, wow, wow. So that learning to catch the language of the I is part of the practice. And then just finally, in the very final point I uh, wanted to make, that one aspect of the break from the old tradition, you had to be the meditator, you had to be the yogi. A break away from that was opening up, and I think this is one of the great insights, the spiritual, to use such a, and worldly, because he used both words, uh, of exploration in a much wider sense. And what that meant was, in the kind of formal language of the Eightfold Path, what it actually says to us is every aspect of life is worthy of exploration. And therefore every aspect is worthy of practice, of inquiry, of uncovering. And therefore, as I said, the first is the view. What is a wise, skillful view in the Eightfold Path? What are our intentions and Nicole referred to this this morning. What are, our, what are our intentions? How important the intentions are. Second link in the Eightfold Path. What is our relationship to communication? What do we say? What, what's the tone that we use? What's the language that we use? What's the attitude that goes with it? What's the livelihood? Is it considerate? Is it thoughtful? What's the actions that we take? What what do we need to bring mindfulness to? Samadhi, the importance of the depths of meditation, etc. So that was a shift away from the yogi and the meditator as the means to an expansive view of life that we wake up, so to speak, in every area while looking at roles and identities and our relationship to them, while looking at causes and conditions and what contributes to things happening, while seeing change and making change, and especially while truly committed to being uh, a conscious and awakened human being, and not sleepwalking through this existence. And the, perhaps somewhere in all of that, that single night there, something as an archetype, use Jungian language here, as an archetype, something has touched human beings that still continues to inspire people to question, to ask the deep questions, to look deeply, to see what the changes are which are necessary there, and to stay committed to that with all the adventure and the risk 
and the exploration that goes with it. And I think that kind of message, for some of us, is a very precious and beautiful message.